Fear of rejection, that happens to all of us. We are concluding our series on Unafraid, a book by Reverend Adam Hamilton. Uh, we've taken pieces of that. It's, it's about a 15-chapter book, but we just uh, did four weeks uh, of different pieces of compilations of it. Um, the thing that I love about um, Adam Hamilton and his church is that it's just right up the road on I-35. And uh, it, it's in Leewood, Kansas, a, a suburb of Kansas City. In a lot of ways, it looks a lot like Edmond. Um, the people um, have similar kinds of jobs. Uh, sometimes we'll have people go up there and go to church there. Other times we've had people come here that used to go there and, and go into our church. And so uh, we just have this really nice relationship. Um, they've just built a new sanctuary. It's, it's huge. Uh, this is our flagship church. And, and so when he was putting this book together um, last fall, he was preaching this series uh, back in 17. And, and he said, after interviewing 2,400 of his congregants, that 80% of them lived with moderate or significant levels of fear. Now, that seems really high to me. I mean, these are people who are upwardly mobile. They're going to have health care. They're going to have a roof over their head. They're going to have cars that work. Um, they're, most of them are going to be college educated. And yet, 80%, 8 out of 10 people are going to bed at night worried. They're waking up worried. They're going through their life really fearful about different things in their life. And I just wondered if maybe that was true for you. That we are the healthiest, wealthiest, longest-lived people in history, and we're the most afraid. The most afraid. I can tell you that as I've traveled the world in mission work, whether that's Guatemala or Nigeria, the people are not very afraid. They're super happy and glad to see you, and they have next to nothing. There's something about this fear that's driving our culture these days. Um, in his book, um, he quotes uh, Professor Sherry Pagoda, and uh, she says, the fear of rejection is the feeling that if I don't do everything I can to make this person happy, they might leave or stop caring for me. And then it is rampant through our culture these days. When we were first starting the church back in 99, 2000, we were meeting with a group of about four or five couples, uh, and we were dreaming about you know, what this church might become one day. Um, we were still meeting at Edmund North High School at the time. And um, the guys, we all went to get barbecue. The girls were uh, at the pool of, of one of these people's house. And as we were getting to know each other, just brand new, just getting to know one another, I realized that at that gathering back in 99, 2000, that of all the 12 to 14 people there at that party, I was the only one whose parents were still together. Everybody else, every 11 of the 12 people, or 13 out of the 14 people, parents had divorced. And they were talking about how hard it was at Christmas and other times to go here and to go there and to go here and to go there and to go there. And some of them had been married multiple times and they'd gotten really close with some of the former husbands or wives. And, and then they were making four and five stops different places or sometimes grandma and grandpa got divorced. And, and then it just sort of like exponential. They couldn't figure out what they were going to do. And I, and I thought, wow, this is, this is really different. I mean, the, the culture um, that we live in today is really different. And so um, this fear of rejection of people leaving you when your parents left you, maybe a mom left you or a dad left you, uh, or you had um, you know, a significant person in your life exit, then, then you really have this fear of rejection that maybe that's going to happen again. Now, God gives us two things to fight back our fear of rejection, and they're super important, and I want you to know them. The first is one another, the church. God gives us each other. Uh, we are God's outpost in the world. Uh, we're a people, a community, uh, an outpost of heaven where everyone is welcome, where you are always welcome here. Uh, to love and care and share with one another. 
and the world. Secondly, then, God gives himself to you through the power of the Holy Spirit, through Jesus Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You can have a personal relationship with God so that you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to worry or wonder if you're rejected. The cross is the central place and figure that we know that because God would choose to die for you, you're not rejected. He's saying, welcome. He's opening his arms wide and saying, welcome. But yet this culture of fear and rejection that is throughout uh, our lives these days is a real thing. And so I want to take us quickly through a progression of rejection and fear in relationships. Uh, I think when you boil down sort of the whole of it, most of us are afraid of being rejected in some way or another uh, by the people that we love most. Uh, or even by people just on the periphery of our lives. Uh, we just don't like it. We have afraid, we're afraid of being alone. That's your first blank there. We have a fear of being alone. Whether that's as a child or whether that's a teenager, whether that's adult, uh, or whether that's in your old age, uh, we have this fear of being alone. And, and it makes sense, of course, because you're carried in the water of a womb for nine months. I mean, you're literally carried inside another person in your, form, in your formation. And then once you get out, oh my gosh, life is hard and terrible, bright lights, and they you know, stick you with needles and whack you on your backside and do all these sorts of terrible things uh, to you very quickly in the first moments of life. And you're like, wow, I want to go back in. This is, you know, scary out here and cold. Um, and so we have this separation anxiety that happens. Um, and, and we know now, research shows that it's so important that little ones are attached to mom and dad, to loving parents. So the other thing that has changed dramatically since uh, I was a child is that now we're more mobile than ever. Uh, it used to be when I was a little kid, when I was four or five, and a plane would go over, I'd say, there's my granny Dot. She was the only person I ever knew that had flown on a plane. Now, how many of you all here have flown on a plane? Right. You're like, that's not a big deal. We, uh, we fly on planes. That's what we do. Today, we are more mobile than ever before. And on average, Americans move how many times in their lifetime now? Any guesses? How many times somebody moves? 11.7 times. Almost 12 times. And every time you move, your relationships are ripped apart. At least some of them, not all of them, but many times they're, they're, you're separated from the very people you've gotten close to. And so particularly in when you're like zero to five, even if your mom and dad upsize a house, it's great for them. It's terrible for you. You lost all your neighborhood buddies. Because usually you'd go to next door and play or you'd ride your bike down and play and you can't do that anymore because now mom and dad have you know, moved up in the world in a gated community over here and you can't see your friends anymore. Or in Edmond, in a lot of other places, every time you change schools, you don't see your friends anymore. You used to be at this elementary, and then you go to that elementary, then you go to this elementary, then you go to a mid-high, and then those kids split into two or three different high schools. And so you keep having these relationships that, certainly for my parents, and even for me sometimes, were lifelong relationships. It's not there anymore. And people are afraid of being alone because they are alone, much more than in the past. Now, when it comes to, is it good to be alone? God says, no, it's not. Of course not. No. Uh, God creates everything in the world, says this is good, this is good, the lion's good, giraffe's good, elephant's good, people, very good, male and female, he created us in his image. And then he says this, it is not good, first time the Bible says not good, not good that the man should be what? Alone. No, I'm going to make him a helper uh, as his partner. Now, before all the ladies get mad at me about this, um, helper there is the same word that's used in the Psalms as one you can't live without, a, a savior, one that would actually lift you up out of the pit. So um, we're equal up in God's eyes, created in his image, males and females. Uh, wonderfully different, uh, wonderfully uh, the same. So what does the world say? The world says, steer clear of anything that could hurt you again. Isn't that true? Like you try something and it hurts, it's painful emotionally, physically, you go, I'm not doing that again. And next thing you know, you're not doing much of anything. 
right? You're sitting in your lazy boy uh, watching the thunder. That's it. You know, because you're afraid of all these other things out there. And that's not good. We're not meant to be alone. But the world says, look, you know, don't, don't let yourself be hurt. And so sometimes uh, there are people that are really afraid emotionally, relationally, spiritually, because their first experience with something was painful. And they step back. And God wants you to know that God loves you. You are accepted in him. And he wants you to try again. Take another step. You can live unafraid. Now, this problem has been around for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. If you go back to the early Hebrew hymn book, the Psalms, it says this. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Speaking of God. If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. God's always with us. We're never alone. And this is good, good news of acceptance and love where we can live unafraid. Jesus, the very perfect manifestation, representation of God in the world, Jesus says this right before he goes up to heaven. You know, his last words are important. He says, and remember, I am with you how long? Always. Always. To the end of the age, forever and ever. Now, so that you don't hear what I'm not saying, let me be really clear about this. Loneliness is not the same as solitude. We all need solitude. Solitude is the basis, the, the basic formation of spiritual di- disciplines. Before you run any other, other spiritual disciplines like fasting uh, or prayer, study, worship, all that, it really needs to start with solitude. We need to be able to hear from God and know that God is real and God is with us. God is unbodily power and presence in our lives. So it's not loneliness. You can be lonely in the middle of Chesapeake Arena uh, with a thousand thundering fans all around us, particularly when we're losing. You feel very lonely. All right? But in solitude... With not one person around, we find that we are never alone. We're not alone. That God is with us and we have everything we need, even if we're the only one in the room. So that there's differences there because God is for us and God is with us. We don't have to be afraid with him. Now, so we have a fear of being alone. Because we have a fear of being alone, those of us who are married have a fear of divorce, of someone leaving us, of it not working out. And divorce is terrible. And there's a lot of bad teaching about divorce. Okay, and so I'm, I'm not going to spend much time here other than to say if you're divorced, we love you. You're welcome here. This, this, this is a community for you. Um, and if you have been divorced and you're remarried, we love you. If you're single, we love you. If you're about to get divorced, we love you. We love you. And you're welcome here. But I think this is only fair to say when it comes to divorce um, that the statistics are all over the place. You could say that more than half the people are divorced, uh, which if you read statistics one way, it's true. Uh, more than half of marriages end in divorce. That's true. It may also be true that more than half of the people are not divorced. They're either single, never married, uh, or haven't yet been married. Um, or, you see what I'm saying? There's lots of ways to read these things and, and how that goes. Uh, the people that get married 38 times really skew the numbers. Okay? And if that's you, I'm sorry. I didn't, I'm not trying to beat on you. I hope no one's been married 38 times. Uh, that seems like that would be tough. So, this is what I do want to show you. The happiness graph. It's my favorite graph. More than 350,000 people were polled with this, and they self-reported happiness. And so you can see that when you're 18, man, you are happy. Your body works. Um, you know, you're awesome. You look good. And um, acne's about over. And then from, you go to college, and, oh, I'm, I'm not as smart as I thought I was. And then you ask a girl out, she says no. You ask again, she says no. She asks, you ask her out again, she's with somebody else. You get here, you find somebody that says yes. 
you get married, and you're like, yay, I feel better. And you're in your 20s, and then you have kids. There's a downward spiral. The next 20 years, boom. Right? And then you'll notice it gets steep right here, like teenagers, boom, you know, down here. Now, you'll notice um, that that's at age 50. Anybody know how old I am? 50. Pray for me. I have bottomed out, friends. Uh, boom. You know, you got college to pay for. You don't get any more snuggles. I mean, try to, you know, hug your 21-year-old boy that's bigger than you are. You're like, uh, and he's scruffy. Ugh. Um, just, you know, it's just a different thing at that age. You got to figure it out. Now, if, if you're not careful, if you have been miserable and more miserable when you're 35, 40, 45 to 50, you start to think, oh, I better get a new spouse. Right? You figure that it's their fault. I mean, if you're in the blame game, most people are. They're like, oh, if I had a new spouse, I would, I'd be okay. I got a new car. I got a new home. And people try to flip all these things between you know, 42 and 50. It's called midlife crisis. And what you find out is after you ditch your spouse or ditch your car, or ditch your home, you're still miserable because it wasn't about them anyway. It's about you and you figured that you're mortal. You used to be immortal when you're 18 or at least that's what you thought. And basically you have been on a downward spiral. Your life really has gotten worse in your mind for 40 years. But it gets better. Your kids leave. <laughs> and you get to come up. And about here, a lot of people quit their job. They get really happy. And then you'll notice here, it gets really interesting. Around 70, a little after 70, you're actually happier than when you were 18. Isn't that crazy? So I've only got 20 years to go. And then I'll be happy again. Or at least as happy as I was when I was a teenager. And part of it is you don't have anything to lose. Yeah, that's what you think when you're 18. And that's what you think when you're 70. You're like, I'm going to live my life. I don't care what anybody thinks. I'm going to answer the doorbell in my underwear. I don't care. Hello. I haven't tried that one yet, but you know. You know, yeah, I mean, at 70, 80, you're like, I'm, I'm headed out. It's all good. So here's the thing, friends. Hold on. Hold on at 50. Hold on at 60. It's getting, it's going to get better. And more often than not, it's not about your spouse anyway. It's about all kinds of things. All kinds of things. So the world, though, when you get to this point, around 50, about my age, the world says, fight for what is yours. And, and I see this all the time. Folks start to get into uh, litigation about... Uh, family money or about a divorce or about a will and then they start fighting for what there is, is theirs or what they think is theirs or what they think they deserve this is a recipe for misery it's a recipe to lose your life and i've seen people that were super happy and had a good life and had good friends and good family and good relationships and when it came to fighting over money what they thought they were owed they lost their life and sometimes they lost it they mean they were miserable for five years, 10 years, sometimes 20 years, sometimes 30 years. Some people never get over it. Because until their dying breath, they're still fighting for what they thought they should have gotten 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And they've lost their whole life. They don't talk to the people. They don't talk to brothers and sisters anymore. They don't talk to their exes anymore. They don't talk to their kids anymore because they weren't done right at that moment. Does this make sense? And so as your pastor, I want you to know that what Jesus says will save your life if you'll listen. If you'll listen. You're only blessed if you do them, not if you hear them. Only if you do them. So Jesus says this. Bless your what? Enemies. You can put your ex there. Bless your ex. Bless your enemies. Bless those that you don't like. No cursing under your breath. Laugh with your happy friends when they're happy. Really, that's good. Share tears when they're down. That's good. Get along with each other. Don't be stuck up. Make friends with nobodies. Don't be a great somebody. Don't hit back. Don't. You'll lose your life. 
Discover beauty in everyone, in everyone. If you've got it in you, get along with who? Everybody. Really, it's a better way to live. It's a better way to live. You're happier, for sure. Don't insist on getting even. That's not for you to do. Friends, it's not for you to do. That's God's. It's not yours. And if you try to take God's place, you will get your head beat in on this one. Trust me, I've seen it over and over and over and over again. People who used to be happy are absolutely miserable because they can't control the whole world. We're not meant to. That's God's job. God says, I'll do the judging. I'll take care of it. Our scripture tells us that if you see your enemy hungry, what do you do? You go buy the person lunch. Or if he's thirsty, you get him a drink. Your generosity will surprise him with goodness. And then don't let evil get the best of you. Don't get the best of evil by what? Doing good. So let's read that together. Scripture says this. Don't let evil get the best of you. Get the best of evil by doing good. So important. Don't lose your life when you're in a moment of misery. There's a whole new world waiting for you in this life and the next. Hang in there. Hang in there. Now, that is hard to remember when you're hurting, when you have this fear of getting sick. Uh, And as you get older, you don't get over it as easily or as quickly. I remember getting my wisdom teeth out when I was 40. Uh, I would suggest you do it earlier than that if you can. Um, I went back to the dentist about 10 days later, and I was like, man, I'm really hurting. Like, is that normal? Like, like you must have done something wrong. And he's like... How old are you? I was like 40. He goes, oh yeah, it's going to hurt for a while. And he was like 30, just out of dental school. I was like, oh, that's terrible. That's terrible. It just, you know, it takes longer when we get sick. And and we kind of expect to get sick when we get older, but we don't expect to get sick or have our kids get sick when they're young. Now, last week, uh, I told you about a a young girl in our church, second grader, a seven-year-old, Audra Yarholer of our church. Uh, She was diagnosed with leukemia last week. And so uh, we've been praying for her, and they wanted you to, to see her doing well and, and, and fighting forward and, and doing well. And so um, I took this little video. I want to say how important it is that we as a church family are there for them, uh, that the folks in their small group are there for them, that OU Children's Medical Center is there for them with child life specialists, with music therapists. This is her uh, music therapist, Emily. We love Emily. She does great work. And I want you to see the joy and the light and the love and the power that's surrounding this little girl these days. That's Emily on the left. That's Audra. That's her mom, April. Pregnant, 24 weeks pregnant. There's Doug, her dad. You don't see your little sister, Amaya, who's still just tiny, tiny, uh, or Addie. Uh, when I went to go see uh, Audra at her home, uh, Cynthia Cood was coming back with Addie. Uh, uh, from McDonald's. They went out to get a burger together, surrounded with love and joy. And do you hear the, the words that they're singing? It's hard to remember sometimes, but you got to keep your head up. Oh, you got to keep your head up and let your hair down, right? Just great love and support. Yeah, the crowd goes wild. So I want you to be praying for her. She, she, I can't tell you the way she lights up when I tell her that uh, more than 600 people are praying for her today when I go visit her this afternoon. It makes a big difference in her life. And that's what the scripture says. That the world says, take care of yourself. That's what the world says. Stay away from sick people. You might get sick too. The scripture says that Jesus heals the sick and that the church has an important role to play in that. It was true then. It's true today. 
So in the scriptures, it talks about Jesus getting out of the boat with his disciples. And at once, people recognized him, and they rushed through that whole region. They began to bring sick people on mats to him wherever he was. And wherever he went into the villages or the cities or the farms, they laid the sick on the marketplaces. And they begged him that they might touch even the fringe of his cloak, of his garments. And all who touched it were healed. You could just touch Jesus' clothes, and you would be healed. We are the outpost of heaven. We are the representations, the representation of Jesus in the world. And we are to pray for people. We are to go and to love them and touch them uh, when it's appropriate in the right ways. Um, I say that because she's immunosuppressed. So we have to be really careful who visits her these days, right? As they take her counts down. But the church has an important role to play. You have an important role to play, to pray for her. I, I would ask that you pray for her every night. You just think of Audra before your head hits the pillow and you pray for her. Uh, the prayers of the righteous are effective. At least that's what uh, Jesus' brother James says. He says, are any among you suffering? You should pray. Are any of you cheerful? Sing songs of praise, which is, of course, what her family was doing around her, what Emily was doing around her. Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church, the leaders of the church. Have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick in this life and the next. We don't know when Jesus will do it. But we know he's the great physician, the great healer. And the Lord will raise them up, and anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Therefore, what we're to do is to confess your sins to one another, your problems, your challenges, the things that are broken in your life. So if you have cancer, tell the people around you, I have cancer. Because there's no healing coming until you admit and confess that's what's going on with you, right? If you're depressed, let someone know, I'm depressed, I need help. If you're sick, let someone know, I'm sick, I need a hand. And then we pray for one another. We get involved in each other's lives in a way that we may be healed. And the prayer of the righteous is powerful. It is powerful and effective. There's real fear about getting sick. But we don't have to when Jesus is with us because the end is in his hands. So the thing that we know is going to happen, we might not get sick, but we are going to get old. Right? We have a fear of getting old. Uh, Particularly when you get to, to my age, you know, kind of midlife, you're like, huh. I wonder if I'll have another 50, right? I mean, not everybody makes it to 100. So I'm like, hmm, what am I going to do with the last half of my life? A lot of us think of it in negative terms. We think of being alone or that our bodies aren't as mobile as they used to be. Um, and we're fear of that rejection. But you don't have to think of it that way. Remember the graph. It's going to go up. I just want you to see me in my old days. This is what I'm going to look like. I'm like, yeah, give me a drop top and head out. Get the little hat. I mean, you can do all kinds of things when you're retired. You get on out there. So the world says that you are worth what you can produce. Isn't that right? A lot of you are in later work life. You, you understand the, the real pull and struggle. Like, well, you, you know, you can't work 80 hours like you did when you were 30. You're only putting in 60 hours now. I think we're going to find somebody else. We've used you up. We're ready to move on. That's what the world does. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what Jesus says. The Bible says, Scripture says, that gray hair is a crown of glory. I'm doing just fine, right? And it's something that when we see gray hair, we're supposed to understand there's wisdom there, there's truth there, there's glory there. Now, that's the proverbial wisdom of the Bible. It is gained in a righteous life. Now, this is important because many of us know, we talked a few weeks ago, about the importance of saving for retirement, that financially we need to be smart about saving our money, not spending it all. Yet, although that's true, The number one indicator of happiness in retirement is the number of what? Meaningful relationships. Now, this is important, friends, because if you're like me, I hope you're not, the older I get, the less I like people. 
I mean, seriously. I mean, in my, when I was 18, when I was 15, I loved everybody. I was like, oh, hey. And then you realize that not everybody likes you. And, and then you become a little more reserved, and a little more reserved, and a little more reserved. Um, and, and most days, you know, uh, if I'm actually off, if I'm not working, and Chantel and my boys, uh, they're wonderful to me. And they'll say something to me like, well, what would you really like today if you could have anything you want? And my response is to be left alone. I mean, that's fairly true for me uh, later in life. And so it gets harder. And I just, for all the guys, you know, they're over 40, I get it. I, I feel you. I understand. You're like, look, I've had friends. It was overrated. It was fine. Um, you know, because you, you focus on your spouse or your kids or your work or whatever, things you can control. And friends are wackadoo. They're all over the place. But here's the thing. If you want to be happy in older age, it's really about how many friends you have. So let me ask you the question. Maybe you've never thought about it. What is your plan for your relational 401k? Because that's what determines whether you're happy or not in old age. Or you could die alone. The choice is yours. I mean, it really is. You can, but it, it, you have to be courageous. You have to take a step. When somebody says, hey, do you want to go do this? You go, sure. You know, we'll try it. You know, and maybe, maybe that won't be as terrible as you think. It might be okay. Guys, do you understand what I'm saying? You do. Like, you're not, okay, right? Some guys are like, I'm not admitting that. No, no. All the wives know that's true. So here's the thing. Um, for those hockey fans out there, uh, this quote is true for me relationally. And that is that you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Did you know that when I was in my 20s, I actually went to a graduation party with Jeff Bezos? The richest man in the world. I was up in, uh, up in an apartment with him, and he was showing me. He said, I'm going to have people sell books online. I was like, sure. <laughs> Seriously, Jeff Bezos. But, I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't develop that relationship. I mean, not that he would remember me anyway, but, I mean, you know, it was, just a, it was just a party, hanging out. Now, when we were doing our research this week, Andy and I, Andy came across a guy whose story I just thought was just so painful. But it ends well, so hang in there. Uh, this is Xi Jing. He has a TED Talk if you want to see the whole thing. Um, but basically what happened was when he was like in pre-K, kindergarten, first grade, they took 30 of the kids. Maybe if you're an elementary teacher, you've done this with your class. It's supposed to be a team-building exercise, really you know, loving on one another. So they had these little boxes wrapped up. I don't think they had anything in them. But the gift was really the words of affirmation from the class. And so this you know, probably first-year teacher thought had this great idea. We're going to do this all at the same time for all 30 kids with you know, kindergartners. So they, the first kid, I mean, everybody's saying nice stuff. Second kid, everybody's doing nice stuff. Third kid, few less. Fourth kid. By the time they get to the last three kids, of which Xi Jing was, the kids were done. And, and so the teacher gives Xi Jing a gift and like, say something nice to Xi Jing. Silence. No, 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 really, because now she's panicked, you know, because they don't want, well, we'll start tomorrow. No, I mean, he's like, you, somebody, please say something nice about Xi Jing. Nothing. And I suppose it's true for the other two kids as well. But he says that that was so uh, a part of his formation that he had been publicly humiliated, publicly shamed, publicly rejected by the entire class that he really had a problem with rejection. I mean, it had taken over his life. So he decided that he was going to make a list of 100 things that he knew he would be rejected for. And he was going to videotape those so that he could overcome through exposure therapy being rejected. So rejection number one, he decided to borrow $100 from a stranger. Just walk up to a stranger and say, hey, can I have 100 bucks? And the stranger goes, no, why? 
and he videotapes himself running away from the stranger after he asks. And he thought to himself, that's not very healthy. Like, I should be able to not run away from somebody just because they won't give me $100. So he decided to try again. So his second rejection was he requested a burger refill. Went to Burger King. He went up and said, I'd like a burger refill. And they're like, what? A burger refill. You know, it's like a soda refill. I finished my burger. I'd like another one. And they're like, no. He's like, okay. He handled it much better. So then he, he's on a roll now. He's like, okay, I'm not running away from people. I'm not causing a big scene. I'm just asking for a want. They're telling me, no, it's okay. I can do this rejection thing. So then he decides to go to Krispy Kreme Donuts and ask for, I'd never heard of this, Olympic Donuts. Maybe you've not heard of that either. He said, I would like donuts made in the shape of the Olympic rings. And watch what happened. This wonderful employee went on Google, looked up the colors of the donuts, and made the rings. And gave it to him on his third try. Wow. Sometimes you make a crazy request, you get an awesome answer. How about that? You know what Jesus says? Seek, ask, knock. It is the Lord's good pleasure to give all these things to you. You don't have to be afraid. Sometimes you ask for Olympic donuts and they bring them to you. It's not even a thing. If any of you all would like to go to Krispy Kreme later and get some Olympic donuts, I'll go with you. <laughs> I'm not afraid. So, so ultimately, where does this lead? Ultimately, we're afraid at the moment of death that God will reject us. That all this leads to this earthly life of rejection. And, and we wonder if God the Father will actually welcome us. Now, for me personally, my dad was a pastor. Um, and it was really hard for me to tell the difference between my dad's voice and God's voice. I had, it took me a while to figure that out. And so when I was a senior in high school, we had moved uh, out to western Oklahoma. And in that school, they had seven core classes. And those seven core classes, you, you started school at 7.30. And if you're in athletics, you didn't finish until 7. It was a 12-hour day every day. Uh, in my journal, I wrote every day in, my, in high school, I'm so tired, I'm so tired, I'm so tired. And if you had homework, it was a 14-hour day or a 16-hour day. And I remember that I got my report card back at, at the break over Christmas. I had six A's and an A-. minus. And I was like, oh, great. Man, I'm, this is awesome. I'm going to leave this on the dining room table where Dad will see it when he walks in. Um, I mean, he's going to buy me a car, something great. You know, this is how, uh, you know, a 17-year-old's mind works. And, uh, I, I mean, I couldn't wait for him to get home. I was like, this is going to be the best day ever. And so, sure enough, he comes home. He's running late from a, a meeting at church. So, it, you know, it's probably 10 o'clock at night. And uh, he comes in, and he says, hey, I got your report card. I'm like, hey, what'd you think? And with all seriousness, he looked at me, and he said, you could have done better. Now, to my dad's credit, if you know him, he meant that as a compliment. He meant, I think so highly of you, you could have done better. But that's not how I took it as a 17-year-old. And I was crushed. I was like, okay, I quit. Life's over. You're never going to be happy. 
when I'm bringing you the best grades that any kid on the planet Earth could possibly bring you, and you're still not happy? And I went to my car, and I played When Doves Cry by Prince, like over and over and over again. Yeah. If you're 50, you get it. If you're not, look it up. It's good. That's good. So, or let's go crazy. Either one. It works. Um, and here's the thing, friends. With all that I am, I want you to know this. God's voice is a voice that says, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come into the joy of your Father. Welcome. Welcome. The great thing about heaven is that there's no rejection there. Absolutely no rejection there. I want you to get that in your minds. It's very important you understand this. Dallas Willard says that heaven is open to everyone who, in God's considered opinion, can possibly stand it. Because in heaven, only what God wants done is done. There's no fighting there. There's no jealousy there. There's no brokenness there. There's no being better than there. You're simply welcome to participate in the kingdom of heaven where God reigns and everybody else serves and loves and blesses. So, C.S. Lewis says it like this, what you believe about death changes everything about how you live in this life. Everything. You don't have to be sad. You see, death is often thought of as sad or negative, but it doesn't have to be. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection, I'm life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, they will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? It's a question. Do you? It changes everything. So, uh, I don't know if you know this, but we believe, and we say this every week, in the resurrection of the body. You get a new body that doesn't get sick, doesn't wear out. When you die, you get a new one. So, if you're looking for me in heaven, I'm going to look like this. For real. That's my new body. I've chosen it. His name is Mark Foster. Google him. For real. I don't know what he'll look like because I will have his body. And then, that'll be me. Right? So, you get a new body. And it's great. Doesn't get sick. Doesn't wear out. Now, Second Peter makes this clear. The Lord's not slow about this, friends. He's patient with you. He doesn't want any to perish, not one, but all to come to repentance. Every person that you know. And the reason we know this to be true is because Jesus on the cross, our founder John Wesley of Methodism, spent a great deal of time explicating this, and that is this. It's really important we understand this. That on one side, one of the thieves on the cross was yelling at Jesus, saying, look, if you're really God, get us down and get yourself down because this is ridiculous. The other one says, no, 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 this guy hasn't done anything wrong. Take me to your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, Truly I tell you, this day you will be with me in paradise. And that guy's done nothing to earn that. So if he's in, you're in. If you want to be in. But notice the other guy is not in. He's not going to heaven, but it's not because Jesus isn't willing. He's not interested. Does it make sense? So if Jesus says, Come on. And if you want to come, come. And receive real life in this life and the next. But you don't have to. It's not forced on anyone. The choice is yours. And you have that choice today. So, if you want to know how to live in peace, live unafraid, this is how you do it. You can pray the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. You wait four seconds and you breathe out. I shall not fear. Try that with me one time. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not fear. You can do that anytime. It's not hard. It'll bring you peace. The other one that I use myself is from John 14. It goes like this. My peace I leave with you. 
my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the whole world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let them be afraid. Try that with me. My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let them be afraid. Really, unafraid. Amen? Amen.